further on as we get a little later on our study. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. There's a lot here in these verses tonight that we're going to pull out just here, and then we'll hopefully if we have time, we'll move even hopefully to verse 13. Notice Paul's concern for them and his understanding that not all who say they believe are for real and are truly saved. He understood that Satan is out there trying to hinder the spread of the gospel. And he said, we, when we could bear it no longer, we really wanted to know whether or not you made it, whether or not your, 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 the decisions that you had made, the professions you had made were real. And so we sent Timothy, when we could be left alone, we sent Timothy to go check on you for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Folks, I want you to understand, and we're going to look at a lot of scriptures tonight that deal with this. The whole process of people coming to faith is a spiritual battle. There's a lot of people that love to just try to act like they've got it figured out, and they know how God saves and all this stuff. And unfortunately, too many Christians are fighting over how God saves. And I just want to encourage you as believers to be wise in the depth of the Scriptures and humble enough to say nobody even fully grasps how God saves. In John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus turned to Nicodemus and he said, The wind blows where it wills, and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is those who are born of the Spirit. Yet at the same time, as we look at the whole of Scripture, as much as the Scripture says if you're saved, God did it, there's also a lot of other Scriptures that also say that we're responsible for whether or not we respond appropriately. And then on top of that, as you're going to see, the Scriptures also go on and show that as God is out there scattering the seed and using us and other means as well, Satan's out there trying to keep it from happening. There is a battle going on just for whether or not people will come to Christ. Go to Matthew 13. We're going to start in verse 18. Jesus is explaining the parable of the soils. And I'm just going to hit it quickly because it's one we've looked at in the past. But I want you to see Matthew 13, starting in verse 18. And notice it from this angle and the, the battle that's going on. Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on... On the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And now as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, another thirty. Now keep in mind, the Bible's very clear, and Jesus is telling us here, that there are some that when they hear the word and it's sown in their heart, they don't quite grasp it at that time, and Satan sometimes comes and snatches it away. Others respond, apparently, but they really don't have real salvation, and when trouble or persecution comes on account of their faith, they go away. This is a heart teaching. Who can understand it? And many of Jesus' disciples 
walked away, even after having been disciples, the Bible says in John chapter 6. Others, they say they believe, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked it. By the way, what does the Bible tell us in 1 John? Who is the one that's the ruler of this world and using all that stuff to pull us away? It's the enemy. There's an attack going on, all of us, that goes on even deeper. Go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 10. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now, the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So again, we don't have time to break this passage down, but I want you just to understand what's underlying in this passage. As Paul's writing to believers, and he says, we're children of God now. But then he also says, as I write to those who are in the church, not everybody in here is really of God. Because there are some who are claiming to be Christians who are being taught and teaching themselves that now that we're saved, we can just do whatever we want because we're forgiven and God's already sealed us and so we can just do whatever we want. And there was false teaching that was going along, along that way. And Paul, sorry, John had to take some time to say, look, if you're going to practice sin, that's the devil. Isn't that the Nicolaitans? The uh, it was, Nicolaitans is part of it. There's also Gnosticism as well. There's all that different levels. And so he's dealing with this, this problem. And so I want you to understand that as he's writing to the church, he also understood the enemies in the church too, trying to cause division. Now, is it our job to separate the wheat from the tares? No. Let the Lord do that at the end. But he also says to us, Make your calling and your election sure. Allow the Spirit to examine you as to whether or not you are in Him. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to see all through the Scriptures, the Bible is very clear that there is a spiritual battle going on, not just after we're saved, but all the time, even for whether or not people get saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 6. Therefore, Paul says, having this ministry... By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ 
who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, look, we're out here. We're not out here to deceive you, as some people would say. And we, we would leave ourselves open to your examination and our consciences are clear. Check us out. And if what we share you don't understand, that's because the enemy's blinding you to it. There's a battle going on. Folks, that's why we need to, as we share the gospel with our family, with our children, with our grandchildren, with our friends, with our neighbors, we need to be bathing it in prayer. Because this is a spiritual battle that's going on as well. We've been taught that if you just say the right things or know enough Bible verses or have been to seminary or, and folks, it has not very much to do with us as much as it has to do with what's God doing. And what is the only thing that breaks through Satan's lies? It's the word of God. Preach the truth of God. I'm going to add a scripture and we'll go to put a finger here in 2 Corinthians. We're going to come to chapter 5 in just a second. But go with me to John chapter 3. God's bringing my, to my mind this other scripture that kind of deals with the same thing. In John chapter 3, we'll start in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because the works for evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, you see the battle going on, the spiritual battle going on. So here, Jesus himself said, that when the lights shined or the gospel's been preached, if people don't want to respond to it, they don't want to respond to it because they don't want to acknowledge they're sinners. Oh, by the way, who's convincing them that they're not sinners? Satan and his minions. There is a spiritual battle going on. So Paul, knowing this, he had been with them and he shared the gospel. And as we've already looked at the beginning of our study of 1 Thessalonians, he said, look, the gospel came not only in word, but in power and conviction and the Holy Spirit and your lives changed. And you guys have become an evidence to the people in the area, not only there, but others. And we don't even have to tell anybody about what, what God's done in your life because the word's already spread. Yet, he's saying this after he had to send Timothy because he wasn't sure. He knew they were going to face persecution. He knew they were going to be tested like rocky soil. And he wasn't sure how they had responded. And he wasn't sure if his labor had been in vain. Go to 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verses 19 and following. We're going to read from chapter 5, verse 19, into chapter 3, verse 2. He says, and we'll start with verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So Paul lays it out even more and he said, look, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. In other words, the debt for man's sin has been paid. Now, in order for them to receive that payment, they must receive it by faith, individually. We now go out, having received it ourselves, as his ambassadors, and we say to people, look, Jesus has already reconciled you to himself through the death of uh, his son. You now need to be reconciled to God. And don't receive this offer in vain. He could have easily said, oh, and by the way, there's a spiritual battle going on right now and whether or not you're going to respond or not respond and don't let Satan win and all that. There are just so many layers to this. Would you not agree that most of us would say, this is beyond my pay grade? Hopefully, every one of us would say, this is beyond our pay grade. Actually, Paul even talks about that. He says, who is sufficient to such a task? He says, to some we smell like life, to others we smell like death. Who is sufficient for such a task? Well, praise be to God who makes us sufficient. And how does he make us sufficient? By arming us with the truth of his word, and we just share what his word says. Well, I'm not sure I believe that or I agree with that. And we want to go down that road of making debates and arguments. And that's what led Satan to trip Eve up. Instead of just standing on what God has said, don't eat from this tree, Satan said, let's talk about it. And she got suckered because she started using human reasoning except the truth of the word of God. If she had just said, God said no, that's enough, she would have been fine. But instead, when she was convinced that the tree was good for food and able to make men wise, she decided to listen to Satan. Folks, listen to me. Some of you want so bad to see people come to faith because you feel like you're a failure if they don't, that you don't understand what's really going on. If you understood this is bigger than you and bigger than me, hopefully you don't say, well, I'm going to get involved because I don't want to get involved. No, if you would understand that it's way bigger than you and you just be faithful to be that simple little voice. You know the story of Naaman who was healed of leprosy? Do you know how he came to faith in Christ? A servant girl, now boy, if this doesn't hit home with what's going on right now in the world, who had been taken captive she had been kidnapped and taken captive by this foreign nation. And she was a Jewish girl. And when she found out her master had leprosy, the one who had just taken her captive, she didn't sit there saying, I hope he dies. Now, I need to chase a rabbit for a second. We're going to come back to the little girl in just a second. I want to caution you. I want to caution you against praying that God would just judge this wicked people in the world right now. We're not in that time period yet. We will be next. I don't think we'll be here, but that's the next time period, the tribulation period. And during the tribulation period, you see the saints crying out when their soul's under the altar, saying, how long till you avenge our blood? But we're still in the time period where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Stephen said, Father, don't hold this sin against their charge. And right now, while we're still in the age of grace, we Christians, please hear me, I'm not for ceasefire. I think there's a time for war. 
I think that what Israel is doing is justified because of the word of God and God's plan. Yet at the same time, don't think for a second that we as Christians should be saying, yay Israel, kill the Palestinians. God loves them still too. And my prayer is that through this war, not only that the nation of Israel will come to faith, because they're going to need to turn to Jesus themselves as well, but also that Palestinians will come to know Jesus. That God will use the horrificness of war, which the Bible says there's a time for war. That God will use it for his purposes. And so right now, as we see the, the atrocities that are happening, it's easy for us to get caught up in, boy, I just wish they'd just wipe them out. No, 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 don't go there yet. That's tribulation thinking. We're still in the time period of saying, Lord, you're God and you're in control and everything you said is going to happen and everything's on schedule. Use this for them to come to know you. And that little Jewish girl did not wish that her kidnapper had died. She said, oh, I wish you would know the God of Israel. There's a prophet in Israel. And Naaman actually went and met Elijah and got saved because of the little Jewish girl that had been taken captive. Do you understand? That's where we need to have our attitude as well. Oh, of course he was almost offended in the methodology. Yeah, again, there's so many layers to this. But again, do you understand what I'm saying? Let God be God, and you don't even have, she wasn't a theologian, she wasn't a scholar, she hadn't been to seminary, she probably didn't even know a lot of Bible verses at that time, but she knew one thing, there's a God in Israel, and she shared it. Folks, you and I do not know how God may use a word here, a word there, a way of life, and living your Christian life. You don't know how many of your neighbors are actually watching you. Stop thinking that you've got to have the right verse and the right story and all this. This is a bigger thing than you and I are capable of. None of us are sufficient for such a task. Yet, the one who makes us sufficient is the one who asks us to go and just share his word. The word of God will defeat and has defeated Satan. Now, Satan uses many ways of stopping the spread of the gospel. One of them is persecution. And Paul and Peter and Jesus said that we, don't miss this because you're going to see it in the scripture, were destined for persecution. Go to 1 Thessalonians 3 again. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are what? Destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Now, I'm going to touch on this and then let the scriptures show you some more. But we have a tendency, especially in the last so many years here in America, of desiring to have a Christian life in which we're not offensive, where we're not bothering anybody. And what we're really wanting is not to have any persecution. And the church has tried to become like the world and try to be more appealing to the world as we try to reach them. Part of that is we think that's going to reach them instead of the truth of the word of God. And secondly, it's because we really don't want them to not like us. But the Bible's very, very clear that if you are for Christ, the world will not like you. If they do like you, something's wrong. And John 15, I won't have you go there, but in John 15, Jesus himself said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Servant's not above his master. They definitely hated him first. Go to Acts chapter 9. 
We'll start with Paul. Look at verses 15 and 16. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord said to him, this is, he's talking to Ananias. He says to Ananias, go for he, Paul, we know him as Saul at the time, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now you say, okay, Jim, I'm okay with that. That's Paul. God's going to show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of the name. Go to Acts 14. Look at verses 19 through 22. But the Jew, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Icon to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to excuse me, continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So everywhere they went, not only did they experience persecution, they told the believers after they get saved, by the way, the same stuff that they've been doing to us, they're going to do it to you too. It must happen. Go to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, look at verses 40 through 42. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And in every, day, every day in the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Listen to what happened. The Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that put Jesus to death, takes these guys and tells them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Of course, they say, you tell us which is right. Should we listen to you or man? And they beat them and said, don't preach anymore in this name. And they went out of there saying, guess what? This is means that we're his. Because the same thing happened to us that he said was going to happen to us. They beat us and they're persecuting us because of our faith in Jesus. That's confirmation that we're his. And I was looking, as I was looking over these notes, it hit me. Remember, one of the main things, and there's many ways that Satan uses to hinder the spread of the gospel. One of them is persecution. But what does God use from our study of the book of James? What does God use to confirm our salvation? Trials and testing and persecution. What Satan is going to use to try to dissuade us, God says, I'm going to let him, and I'm going to use the same thing to confirm that your faith is real. I know of some of you who have been through some things in your life that if you weren't really saved, you would have left a long time ago. Because your walk with Jesus has not been an easy one. It's not been a smooth road. But even though you've been through all these attacks because of Jesus, you're still here. Why? Because he who began a good work in you is finishing it. And we're going to talk about some of those scriptures in a little bit. But I just want to encourage you. The Bible says we were destined for this. By the way, I'm not even close to done showing you how the Bible says we we're destined for this. Go to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. Listen to verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see it? That's a part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Yet we try to live in this world where we don't offend anybody and therefore we stop sharing truth because we know that they will be offended by it. Folks, I'm going to encourage you. Don't try to be offensive. There are too many Christians out there, and I actually just preached a whole message on that this morning at noon to a group of men, how the Bible's very clear that we're to share the word, we're to preach the word, but we're to do it with gentleness and patience. We're to be resting in the fact that God's word's powerful enough by itself. We don't have to be loud. We don't have to be angry. We don't have to win the argument. When you really fight the fight, fight the good fight in faith, you share the truth of God's word, but you do it gently, patiently, and you leave the word of God to do its work. That shows that you really believe in the power of God. If you think you need to be the loudest or win the argument, you don't think the word of God's powerful enough, and it needs your bombasticness. Too many Christians today are proud of the fact that they're standing against evil, but they don't show any Jesus. So the Bible is very clear that we are going to be experiencing persecution, trials, because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, guess what the Bible says we're supposed to be? And I know it's not popular. We're supposed to be pro-Israel. The Bible is very clear on that. That God will bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. Not just nations, but individuals. And folks, I'm just going to say it whether you like it or not. And again, God loves the Palestinians just as much as he loves the Jews. But the Bible is very clear that we in the church should be praying for the peace of Israel. And for that means the nation of Israel to receive their Messiah. Because that's the only time the peace is really going to come. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, verses 20 through 25. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Don't miss this next verse. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls again. What have we been called to? To suffer because we're followers of Jesus Christ. You might get canceled. I might get canceled. And honestly, in the days we're living in, if in some way, shape, or form you're not canceled, I'm going to be a little surprised. Something might not be right. Now, should we go out there and try to get canceled? No. But we shouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden certain people stop talking to us. You didn't get the job. I actually heard something on the uh, preacher talking about today, how this person in another nation was given a job where he was going to be like the commissioner of that sports league. And one day after he had been uh, hired, 
they did a little more background checking and they found out he went to a church that believed that babies in the womb were created by God and shouldn't be aborted. And when they found out that he went to that kind of church, they fired him a day after he had been hired. But if you believe in Jesus and believe in the word of God, don't be surprised when the world says, well, we don't think you have the right to be in position or whatever. God's got it. The first believers in their church, especially the Jewish ones, lost their family. They lost their jobs. They lost their everything. They couldn't go to the synagogue. They were canceled. Go to John 16. Watch, well, you don't have to turn there. Verse 33, Jesus said, in this world you will have what? And, and I, people say, well, I know we'll have trouble. I just like a couple of days off. Well, if you remember, Jesus also said, in the book of Matthew, he said, each day has enough trouble of its own. So if Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have trouble, and every day has a, its own kind of trouble, when you say, I just want to live a life with peace and quietness and no trouble, what you're really saying is, I want Jesus to be wrong. Now, again, we don't go looking for it, but don't be surprised when it shows up, because it's going to in many different ways. Now, not all of us are called to live like Paul and suffer like Paul. Some of us might have it easier than others. What if Jesus said to Peter, here's, you're going to die. And by the way, he died of crucifixion. And Jesus told him that 25 years before it happened. And of course, Peter says, what about John? He goes, what if I want him to remain alive until I return? What's that to you? You follow me. Again, don't compare your level of suffering because of Christ to others. Each of us need to run the race marked out for us. Go to 2 Timothy 3. Second Timothy three verses ten through fourteen. Paul says to Timothy, "You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed." All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some. All. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus, Christ Jesus, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I had planned on stopping in verse 14, but I couldn't just leave those verses off. Let me say this to you, folks. After just listening to those verses, I have more, but I think you get the idea. Do you still want to sign up? Have you ever noticed that when the Army and the Marines and the Navy, the Air Force, I don't want to leave anybody out and get anybody mad at me. Coast Guard, Space Force, Space Force now. I was like, listen, you ever notice when they're trying to get recruits, they show flying airplanes and doing all this stuff? They don't show boot camp. But you know, Jesus, actually, when he was calling his recruits, he showed them boot camp. Go to Luke 14. Jesus told us all to count the cost. 
We're trying to lower the standard of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in hopes of getting more church members. But that's not how Jesus did it. We're trying to get bigger crowds. Jesus thinned the crowds. Look at Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, How can I make you comfortable? Is the air conditioning the way you like it in the sanctuary? Are we singing the kind of songs that you want us to sing? Is the sermon the appropriate length? It's not what Jesus said. He turned to the crowds and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, in other words, he's saying, I need to be first. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Isn't that interesting? Now, of course, the longer we walk with him, the more we come to understand the depth of what he's saying. He has to be first. And he's not an addition to our life. It's not like, oh, and I'm a Christian as well. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We're servants of Jesus Christ. We're slaves of Jesus Christ. And he gets to call the shots. And if I tell you to get up and leave and leave your family and head to a land that I want you to go to and the plan I have for your life, you need to be willing to do that. If I tell you, even though you want to go on a mission trip with me in my boat, and I tell you to go home and you tell your family what it is I've done for you, you need to be willing to do that as well. I know you may have a desire to go preach to the Jews, Paul, but if I've chosen you to go to the Gentiles, you need to be willing to give up on what you really, really want to do and be willing to follow me because I am the Lord. I am the master. And if you guys want me to take you to heaven, the only way you can go there is if you give me your life. By the way, that's not the kind of preaching we hear, is it? All you can do is pray this prayer. You can be forgiven, guaranteed you're going to heaven. But Jesus didn't preach that way. People were following him and he'd stop and he'd say, what can I do for you? Well, I want to follow you. Well, he'll say birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You sure you want to sign up? At the very beginning of Paul's conversion, what did Jesus tell Ananias? We read it in Acts 9. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Again, it's not our job to figure out who's saved and who's not. The Holy Spirit's good enough taking care of that. But I can tell you this much, folks. If you thought being a Christian was going to be smooth and easy, someone didn't share with you the truth of the gospel. Why? Because just even getting saved is a spiritual battle. And if you came to faith, God won. Satan tried to hinder it, but God's power was greater and is greater. But now that you're a Christian, that doesn't mean that there's still not going to be attacks. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us, Our Father who art in heaven, 
Lead us not into temptation. Isn't that interesting? In James 1.13, the Bible's very clear that God doesn't tempt anyone. Well, what does it mean then when we're to pray to God the Father and say, don't lead me into temptation? Well, if you're a child of God and sealed by the Spirit of God, Satan can't do anything to you now without his permission. And Satan has to go to him to get permission to mess with you. And sometimes God allows him. Jesus himself was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be what? Tempted. Straight from his baptism. You ever thought about 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has seized you, but such is common to man. In other words, you're not going through anything nobody, anybody else hadn't gone through. Don't think you're the only one struggling with this. And God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. And with the temptation, he'll provide a way to you, for you to escape. You ever thought about the fact that God seems to be pretty active in my temptation? Well, he is. He's not causing it. He's not doing it. But he's using Satan for his purposes. Oh, what is Satan's purpose? Satan's purpose is to prove that you're phony. God's purpose is to confirm in your heart that you're for real. And on top of that, God's going to use the trial to make you stronger in your faith. What Satan meant for evil, God means for good. But if we think that if we live the Christian life, we'll have all our bills paid, we'll have nice cars, we'll never get sick. I mean, we read earlier, by his stripes we are healed. But that's not what the Bible was talking about, physical healing. As you remember from our James study, he was talking about spiritual. But if you've been taught that being a Christian, especially here in America, that you get to have a best life now, and then... Real biblical Christianity happens, some of you may walk away. I honestly think that's why Judas walked away. I think Judas believed that Jesus was the coming Messiah. But as it got closer to the end, remember how John the Baptist even questioned? I mean, John the Baptist had been sent by God to preach. His axe is laid at the foot of the tree. His winnowing fork is in his hand. This guy's coming on the scene, and he's going to separate the wheat from the tares. And Jesus shows up, and he's nice. And he forgives people and he eats with sinners and he's patient and he doesn't yell in the streets. And he's not even really dealing with Rome. Tells them if they ask you for a coat, give them another one. That's not what we were expecting the Messiah to do. I mean, we thought the Messiah was going to come and obliterate Rome and set up his kingdom. And John the Baptist even says, are you the one? Or should we look for another? And I think the longer Judas walked with Jesus, oh, he already had an issue with money, the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John. I think the longer he walked with Jesus and he kept hearing, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be put to death. Three days later, I'll rise. They're going to kill me. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. But three days later, I'll rise. I think I see in Judas, uh, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't why I followed him. I know many of people that confessed salvation and belief in Jesus, but then mom died. And he didn't do what I thought he was going to do. I don't believe in a God that would let babies be killed. I don't want to believe in a God and fill in the blank. They said they believed. But in time it became evident that they hadn't counted the cost. Is God? I was talking with a man just this past week in one of my places that I was preaching. And he's wrestling with something very hard. And I asked him this question. Can God be God 
in your life. He goes, what does that mean? I go, can he call the shots? Or does he have to do it the way you want him to? But I'm not sure I want to go through this. I understand that. None of us want to. But let me ask you another question. Can God be God? I'm not sure I can live that kind of a life. Let me ask you again. Can God be God? Isn't that pretty much what God said to Job when, he, when Job met him face to face? He pretty much, you can paraphrase it. Are you God or am I God? And can I be God? And you know what? Job didn't even need an answer anymore. You're God, and I'm not, and that's good enough for me. Folks, for those of us who are willing to let him call the shots in our life, in our finances, in our health, and how he does things, those of us who do this will be rewarded. By the way, I got good news for you. Those of us who are truly saved, you're being held on to by God. I quoted it earlier, Philippians 1.6. Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began this good work in you will finish it. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Yeah. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 21 and 22. And it is God, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may they comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Remember John 3, 21, I read earlier? Whoever comes to God does it so that it will be clearly seen that what they have been done has been done by who? By God. That's John chapter 3, verse 21. Oh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. At first, though, Paul didn't know if their salvation was real or if Satan had had his way in their lives. So he sent Timothy to see how well they were doing. Let's jump back to 2 Thessalonians 3. I'm going to read to you verses 6 through 13. We'll see how far we get in these verses. Sorry, 1 Thessalonians, thank you, Jeremy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13. But now that Timothy has come to us, Paul said, from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, we will not finish all of these verses tonight, but I want to at least 
dive into it a little bit, and we'll pick up where we left off, where we leave off tonight, we'll pick up next week. Paul now shares how excited he is to hear that their faith was real and that they hadn't believed the lies of Paul's opponents and how they longed to see Paul again just as Paul longed to see them. Paul shared that their standing firm in the Lord actually was an encouragement to them in the midst of their struggles. I want to spend a little time here. You may not realize how much we need each other especially in this world that is so against Christ and therefore us. Folks, we need to spend more time together as the days get closer to Jesus' return. Why? Because we need the encouragement of each other. I'm going to be honest with you, as a pastor and a minister of the gospel for many years, there have been times that I have seen other believers go through things that I'm not sure I could handle, apart from God's grace. And to be honest with you, I've actually wondered a few times when those people go through whatever it is they've gone through, whether or not they were going to stick, because it was that hard. And when those individuals actually came out on the other side stronger and stronger in their faith for the Lord, I have to be honest, inside it made me go, wow, that's surprising. Praise the Lord, that's encouraging. And it's further evidence that that person's really saved. Because to be honest, we've seen enough over the years of people that talked a good game, but when push came to shove, they went away. When I see a brother or sister go through something really hard, and they come out stronger, it's an encouragement to me. I hope it's an encouragement to you. That's why the Bible says that we're to spur one another on toward loving good deeds, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Why? Because we're actually an encouragement to each other in these days that we live in. A lot of times, I've been preaching to this group of men that I preach to on Tuesdays off and on. I've been doing it for 21 years now. I don't know how many years we've been holding this Bible study, but some of y'all have been sitting here listening to me teach, and I've been looking out at you and holding my lunch back. No, I'm kidding. And uh, we've been encouragement to each other for a long, long time. And the longer we stay this way, and the more we see all of us go through, you guys have walked through non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with me. And you've been an encouragement to me, and hopefully I've been an encouragement to you in my walk with the Lord through all these things. The longer we do this, the more we realize how much we need each other. And I'm just telling you, even just being consistent in your walk with the Lord, and faithful in attendance, is valuable. We need each other. In Acts 2, we're not going to turn there. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. In Acts 4, 32 through 35. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Acts 4, 32 through 35. It talks about how the early church met together in each other's homes. They ate together daily. They prayed. They shared. They just encouraged each other. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They, they didn't have, they had everything in common. They weren't communists. But if you needed my truck, my truck's yours. Give it back. And a lot of times I've had relationship with people like that, and whenever they borrowed a vehicle, I get it back and it's washed and has a full tank of gas. That wasn't my intention, but I also remember who fills it up, and I'm glad to let them borrow it again, especially when it's low. Do you need my truck, by the way? No, at the same time, folks, you don't realize it. Paul said, you guys, you, have, you brought us joy because we realized you're continuing the faith. This past uh, Friday and Saturday, I had the privilege, like I told you last time we were together, of 
speaking at a church where a young man who's now no longer young, his kids are as old as ours. I got to hang out with him, and he was youth pastor at a church I was pastor of in, in Chicago. And we hadn't seen each other in a long time, but we've been in touch, of course, through internet and different things. And he had me come and speak to his congregation Friday night and Saturday night, and we had meals together. And as he introduced me on Saturday night to the big group, he went on and on. He even showed picture on the big screen of when I was a part of an ordination group that was all laying hands on him when he got ordained to the ministry. I sat there weeping. I told him afterwards, I want that picture. I, want, I would love a copy of that. And as I, Becky and I sat there, we were listing the names of the people. And some of them are in heaven already. Art Schwaz, Dave Dixon, Daryl McCauley. Sean Palmer. I could go on and on. Franklin Davidson. There were so many of those men that we had lived lives together. And then to see Wade this past weekend. He gushed as he introduced me. And then when I got up to speak, I took the time to gush, telling his congregation about him and stuff they didn't know. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, that we're to outdo one another in showing honor. And buddy, that went on for a long time Saturday night until I finally said, all right, let's get to the sermon. Wade and I got to stop kissing each other. But I'm telling you, what a joy. As I know, because we've been following in, them in ministry and supporting them and also at the same time getting their reports, we've seen the things they've gone through, his wife's health struggles that they've had and still have, his kids growing and becoming men and women of God. They served in Africa and they've served in, in, in the Indian uh, reservations in North and South Dakota. They've been doing ministry in India and Cuba and now they're doing hard ministries in parts of South Carolina and North Carolina. He was a police officer for a while because God called him to that. And folks, let me just tell you, that is what lit my fire to see that what God had begun years and years ago. And as I looked at that group of men laying hands on Wade and Kate, it hit me. We were so clueless back then. I mean, I think about how much I know now. And I look back on those years and I think, none of us were qualified to lay hands on anybody. We didn't know half of the stuff we know now, but at that time, that's where we were and the role God had given us. And he who began the good work has finished it in all of those men. Let me ask you a question. Who's your group of people that God has knit you together over the years? They don't even have to go to your same local church anymore. Are you living your life that way? Are you connecting with other believers are you living life together? I had the privilege today after I spoke at the men's luncheon to go have lunch with a group of men that are on the board for my ministry who we've been friends with from our years here at this church. And we get together regularly. And today we met at the mall in the food court. And another man joined us that I'd never met before. And we just sat there and talked about the Lord. We know each other so well we can tease and joke. We can't help but say in the parking lot, I love you. I didn't care if anybody was listening. We're men. So we said goodbye. We said, I love you. You know why? 
most of those guys, 30-something years of walking together with Jesus. You might be an encouragement to somebody you don't know it. We're going to wrap up tonight with the fact that Paul says in verse 10 that one of the reasons that Paul was wanting to see them again was to supply them with what was lacking in their faith. Look at verse 10. He says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Did you know that your faith is lacking too? I hope you don't think it is. I hope you don't think you're fine. Hopefully you acknowledge our faith is still lacking. It's still growing. That's why the Bible talks about to grow in the faith and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I told you, years ago when we laid hands on Wade and Kate, we didn't even know half the stuff we know now. And you know what? We still haven't gotten there. And if Jesus tarries and we look a picture of one of these Bible studies later on, we might look back and think, man, we still didn't even have it all figured out. We learned so much more about the Lord and who he is and how he works after all of that. In Luke 17, the disciples cried out in verses 5 and 6, Lord, increase our faith. And what's interesting is he starts off by saying, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain and it can be moved. They say move and it'll be moved. And that's interesting. They said, Lord, increase our faith. And he says, faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. What was he saying? Now, I don't have time to dive into this in too much detail, but let me paraphrase it for you. What Jesus was saying to them is this. You... Your great faith and little faith is not determined by how much faith you have. Great faith and little faith is determined by the size of your God. If you were to take my word for it and double check me, please, and go to Matthew chapter uh, 14, Peter walks on the water. But then the Bible said that he took his eyes off of Jesus and put them on the wind and the waves and he began to sink. And Jesus said to him, O you of little faith faith. Now, wait a minute. Most of us would say, what do you mean little faith? He had enough faith to step out of a boat in a storm because Jesus said so. He had enough faith to step out of a boat in a storm and Jesus said he has little faith. Stick with me. Chapter 15 of Matthew, you'll see that Jesus deals with this woman who's a Gentile. Her daughter has a demon. She cries out to Jesus and says, help, heal my daughter. Jesus said it's not right for the children's bread to go to the dogs. And she says, I'll paraphrase it. She says, then I'll be a dog. Because even the dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall from the children's table. Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Hang on. Peter had enough faith to step out of a boat in a storm, and Jesus said he had little faith. The woman says, I'll just take crumbs, and Jesus says, you have great faith. But then in chapter 17, he makes this statement. He said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it'd be moved. Now, hang on for a second. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, it's so small you can't see it. If you say, I've seen a mustard seed, you were this close. They're tiny. So what was Jesus saying? He, he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, what he was showing was, it's not the size of your faith that determines great faith or little faith. It's the size of your God. This is, let's check this definition now against what Jesus said in Matthew 14. Remember, Peter, when Jesus said come, had enough faith to step out on the water. Why? Because Jesus said come, and if Jesus said come, I believe he's powerful enough to take care of me. While he exercised great faith, he got out of the boat, but what did he do? His God, exactly, he took his eyes off of Jesus, and the storm got bigger, and Jesus got smaller, and his faith shrunk. 
size of his God shrunk. The woman says, you're so big and powerful, if I just get a crumb that falls from the table, that'll be all I need. Jesus said, that's great faith. And so folks, we're all lacking in faith. But we don't need to conjure up more faith. We need to get to know who he is more. You understand? You don't need more faith. I've told this story before. Some of you remember, some of you may not. You go to the doctor. He prescribes some kind of medicine for you, writes it on a prescription, hands you the piece of paper. You can't read what he wrote. You have no idea what he wrote. I've jokingly said over the years, he could have easily written down, have fun killing this person, Dr. So-and-so. You take a piece of paper you can't read to a person you don't know in a room full of medicine at the pharmacy, and that medicine in there could kill you instantly. And you hand them a piece of paper you can't read. They go in the back, put pills in a bottle, and they say, put these in your mouth once a day, and you do. You don't need more faith in the sense of greater faith. You've got plenty of faith. You need to know how big God really is. So Paul said, and we're going to deal with this more when I come back next week. We all come back next week. He said this. We wanted to get to spend some time with you to help you where you're lacking in faith. By the way, that's how we encourage one another. We remind each other about what? The bigness and the greatness of God. And that's what we need right now, don't we? In this world that's getting crazy, and let me just say this, we don't know, but there's a strong chance that life as we know it in America could change instantly if this war escalates over there, doesn't it? It definitely could. I mean, just imagine what could happen if they decide that we're going to affect oil and all this stuff, and all of a sudden trucks can't ship, and price of gas just goes up, and you know what? Life as we know it may get a lot different than we know it. But you know what? Everything that's happening is starting to line up with all the things the Bible said were going to happen in the very last days. So what are we going to do? Exactly. Keep looking up and at the same time, spend more time with each other, encouraging each other. Don't get caught up in the politics. Don't get caught up in the frenzy. Keep your eyes on Jesus so that you can be one of those people that he, they'll come and say, give us reason for the hope that lies within you. And all you can say to him is this. Well, there's many things, but one of the things you can say is, is we got a big God. we got a big God. When we come back together next week, we'll dive more into this, increase what's lacking in our faith. But for tonight, we'll stop. I love you. Thanks for coming.